0: Turn with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Just a few more messages here. And before I kind of get into the text here and some introductory thoughts, you know, we're singing of Christ. We're singing of turning our eyes to Him and and looking to Him. And one of the challenges of preaching through Song of Solomon is, with the exception of one verse that we'll look at tonight, which is is very clear. Soft and subtle, the name of God isn't even mentioned in Song of Solomon. Now, why is that? Well, it's it's not the only book in which that's the case. The book of Esther, that's the case as well. But what it does tell us is that God cares about how we live on this earth and that the false dichotomy of invisible spiritual things are good and physical earthly things are bad is just that. It's false. What was God's original original intention for us? It was to live in a physical world, in physical bodies, in perfect spiritual harmony with himself and with one another. And so as we've seen, Song of Solomon is an attempt to return to that. That even in the midst of a sinful world, in the context of a home, in the context of a marriage, which is very much representative of Christ in the church, representative of God and his people, as we see in the New Testament, that we have the opportunity to live a sanctified life that's pleasing to him. And so he cares about that. He cares about it so much that he put this entire book here to help our marriages. And it's not just a marriage help book. It's not a marriage manual. It is God's view of marital love. And we want his view on everything, right? We want his view on all the ways we live in our lives. And so as we go through this, while there's not a clear, direct pathway directly to Christ, uh, the pathway is this. Jesus said in John 13 that if you love me, you obey my commandments, that you love my word, that you keep my words. And so the gospel is lived out then through our obedience. And Song of Solomon is one way we do that. And given the fact that marriage is just a mess on planet Earth right now. And it's just getting worse. Now, you don't even know whether you're married to a man or a woman anymore. And so, given the fact that marriage is a mess, this is a a drink of cool water because this is God's will. And it doesn't matter whether you're married now, have been married in the past, going to be married later, it doesn't make any difference. This is God's word, and it's always a drink of water. Truth is always good. And it's good for the church to as a church culture, understand what marriage ought to be. And so if you're maybe having trouble charting a path to the cross from Song of Solomon, I I would say it almost like this, that the cross charts a path backwards to Song of Solomon in that those who love Christ, this is how they live. And they take the admonition seriously. And I bring this up because what we're going to see tonight is really the most serious section in the whole book, the most weighty and deep section. You see, God's invention of the marvelous institution of marriage was meant to be the very building block of His command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's built on marriage. It's a mysterious and wondrous one-flesh relationship. We saw this morning the New Testament calls this relationship Being a one-woman man and a one-man woman in 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Timothy 5. But almost immediately in antediluvian history, the history before the great flood, sinful mankind began desecrating God's gift of marriage. It just happened almost instantly. First of all, because of sin, Adam and Eve, who once had been naked and not ashamed, are now clothed because nakedness is now connected to spiritual nakedness and to sin and then as early as Genesis 4 a descendant of Cain named Lamech takes the desecration of marriage to a new low one in which now women are subjugated to men as inferiors not as equal creations with different roles to play Genesis 4.19 gives the ominous sin of Lamech which would resound throughout the Bible from then on and Lamech took two wives. Now this is no longer a one flesh relationship. Now this is a use women for my own purposes relationship. And the Old Testament is filled with the disastrous consequences of ignoring God's original intent for marriage. You have Abraham giving himself to Sarah's servant, Hagar, because he couldn't wait on the Lord to give him a son. What happened? Disaster and pain. You had Jacob being tricked into, but nevertheless accepting both daughters of Laban, Leah and Rachel. What happened? Disaster and pain. King David taking seven wives, which was still not enough for him, and he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murdered to cover up his sin because she had become pregnant, what happened as a result? Disaster and pain. And as we've seen in Song of Solomon, David's son Solomon, the heir to the throne and by now in the story of the full king of Israel, he was quickly going down the same path with the example set by his father. And we saw earlier that by the time the story of Song of Solomon even begins, it's very likely that Solomon already had one wife named Naamah, the Ammonite princess a political marriage, and that just started a cascade. It just started the domino effect. Later in the story, by chapter 6, verse 8, Solomon has 60 wives and 80 concubines. And so we've seen as a sub-theme throughout Song of Solomon riding under the surface the tension and the pull that Shulamith, the bride of Song of Solomon, The tension in Paul is that she is the singular love of Solomon's life, and yet he's in this terrible situation of this ever-increasing group of women in Jerusalem. The burden that they bear together is overwhelming. We already know from Scripture, at this point in history, he is the wealthiest man on earth. We already know he is the most sought-after man on earth, and if you read her description of him, he's probably the best-looking man on earth. That's a triple whammy of trouble. Listen, ladies, if you look at your husband and think no danger there, (laughs) be grateful, be grateful that the rest of the world isn't after him. It's a tension, it's a pull. Now they've had some difficulties in their marriage, but we've seen the progression of what we've called rekindled love, that they're. They're growing together. Shulamith had taken Solomon briefly out to the countryside, even doing an intimate and sensual dance for him. We saw that in chapter 7. She then invited him to a longer time out in the countryside to go through the vineyards and stay in one of the villages, perhaps even in a small house that Solomon may have owned in his own vineyards. And in the vineyards, chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, she gave him her love. And in the village or house they stayed in, she gave him her love yet again in verse 13. But they're going farther than that. The most likely scenario here is that Shulamith has asked Solomon to just leave this life behind for a time to strengthen their love and their bond together and to travel back to her home to southern Lebanon, to the north of Jerusalem. And that's what apparently they have done. And that's the theme of our time together tonight. We want to see how they strengthen their growing love, strengthening the marital bond in the relationship. But there's going to be some tense moments in here. I want to just walk through the text a little bit at a time. And I'd like to just let the text show us what strengthening love means. What strengthening love means, and we'll let that be the beginning of a sentence, and we'll add a different phrase to the the end of it, and we'll do that eight times. And so, first of all, we'll say that strengthening love means honoring above all others. Strengthening love means honoring above all others. Chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. Now, this is something that we don't understand. 3,000 years removed like this. We never tell somebody that we're romantically involved with, boy, I wish you were like my brother. And we don't say that. What is she saying, though? She's expressing the wish that the cultural norms would stop getting in the way of their public affection. Because in the ancient Near East, a sister could be affectionate with her brother. Nobody had a problem with that family bonds were very strong but especially around the bride's family the public display of affection even between the married couple was frowned upon she wants to kiss him openly and she wants to be proud to do so and that may be the main issue that she just wants to be more affectionate most likely though there's an even bigger issue at play here remember the historical context Solomon's public identity, a man being visited by kings and queens from around the world, holding court with the greatest people in the world. And almost certainly it was not the vineyard worker's daughter from southern Lebanon that was publicly at his side. Most of the time, if not at all. Having political marriages in order to please his allies meant that at public events, Solomon's queens were to be on display. They were to be in the public eye. First Kings one Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter. First Kings 11:1, now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women. And so for Shulamith, while she was able to be the passionate wife at nighttime during the days, she may have been relegated to the background. I know for us this is unthinkable in our non-ancient Near Eastern sensibilities, and it certainly, absolutely doesn't represent God's plan for one man and one woman in a lifetime of marriage. In fact, some scholars believe there's evidence that Shulamith may have attempted public uh, affection with Solomon, but may have been rebuked or put down or rebuffed by Solomon's officials, even trying to, to keep her away from him as long as there's a public event going on. And so now, being away together, first in the vineyards, then in the villages, just being alone, and now coming to Shulamith's childhood home, she wants full attention. She wants to be honored above all others. I can't even grasp what it would be to be in competition with hundreds of other people for my spouse's affection. And this is, again, an almost unthinkable situation that she's in. And yet you notice that Shulamith continues to win her husband's heart. She wins his heart rather than complaining, rather than nagging to get her way. She simply continues bringing tremendous affection to their relationship. Even proactively getting them away from the palace to build their marriage together. The conditions of their marriage are far from ideal and yet they continue pursuing each other and in particular she's pursuing him and she's doing so aggressively. But she has made a request. She's done so in an extremely alluring and sensual fashion but the request is there nonetheless. I want to be the only one. And as we're going to see, this request will become less hinted at and eventually simply made as a request, and rightfully so. The second thing that strengthening love means, strengthening love means elevating your bond with children. Elevating your bond with children. Shulamith knows what she's talking about. She knows what she's about. One of the ways that she wants to try to elevate her bond with Solomon is to have a child with him. We have to kind of build our way up to this, though, because it's just hinted at. In just the past two verses, Shulamith's hints about children are growing. Chapter 7, verse 13, the mandrakes there, those were thought to be an aphrodisiac. And at least one time in the Old Testament, Rachel in Genesis 30 was thought to help fertility. And whether it's true or not doesn't make any difference. That's what was thought. Now, in chapter 8, verse 1, she doesn't just say, I wish you could be like one of my brothers who culturally is allowed to be affectionate with me in public. No, she doesn't say that. She says that she wishes Solomon was like his brother, like one of those who nursed with her mother. Hint, hint. We're talking about motherhood here. But now the hinting becomes more and more obvious. Verse 2, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. Shulamith's mother is apparently still alive. And at the family home, this is clearly where Shulamith feels the safest, where she can be herself. There's a fond remembrance of her childhood, the mention of her brothers in verse 1, and the days when her mother used to teach her. She's remembering back to those days of being a little girl. Now, why does she refer to her mother as she who used to teach me? Well, teach me what? Shulamith is wanting to emulate her mother. And in the ancient Near East, the mother was, as it should be, the primary teacher of the children, especially the daughters, and especially in womanly matters. It was from the mother that a girl would learn about puberty and about the menstrual cycle and about sexuality and about childbirth and about breastfeeding. And unless she was the youngest in the family, it was not unusual for sisters to be present for the births of younger brothers and sisters, as well as seeing her mother nurse the babies. And on top of that, a girl would assist on the family farm with animal husbandry, helping and seeing animals mate on a regular basis. Let me put it to you this way. A a girl in the ancient Near East growing up in a rural setting, which was almost all of them, would have a much greater knowledge of her mother's sexuality as something normal and beautiful and noteworthy, as opposed to our modern idea of being physically ill at the thought of our parents' intimate life. We have a great separation that in their culture they just didn't have. It was normal. It was was right. One scholar noted this, an historian, he said, quote, she is emulating what she has seen and heard all of her life, in the person who up to this time has been the closest to her. More than that, as her mother was intimate with her father and so gave birth to daughters and sons, she will do the same and become the teacher of her daughters. And in fact, many scholars, based on this cultural understanding, feel that the old things that Shulamith did with Solomon intimately, back in chapter 7, verse 13, Choice fruits, new as well as old, that these old things refer to the the basics of human sexuality that Shulamith learned from her mother. And the new things may have been those things she learned that Solomon likes and they enjoy together. So you have the mandrakes in chapter 7, the reference to nursing in chapter 8, verse 1. That desire becomes much more obvious now for children. And it gets even better For the second time in just a few verses, pomegranates are mentioned, both in the context of Shulamith's sexual desire, but there also seems to be a more subtle overtone as well. In chapter 7, verse 12, she tells Solomon that they should see if, quote, the pomegranates are in bloom. Early pomegranate blossoms, that said that spring was arriving, pink and white blossoms. And now in chapter 8, verse 2, she wants to give him the juice of the pomegranate, either actual wine made from pomegranates or metaphorically the spiced wine to drink being herself. since so she says this is the juice of her pomegranate. Now, what's with all the pomegranates? I'll bet you've never heard the word pomegranate so many times in one sermon, ever. In the ancient Near East, the pomegranate was considered a symbol of Fertility. And it's not a stretch to see this. If you've ever cut a pomegranate in half, there's a whole bunch of big ripe seeds inside. And so that's very clear. Chapter 7, verse 12, let's see if the pomegranates are in bloom. Given all the other hints about children, it may be that she's saying, let's see if we can have a baby. That's very likely how Solomon would take it. And if that's not enough, then she just gets direct. Verse 3, His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Now she's describing being completely embraced by her husband. This is an imperfect verb that means a repeated action. They're taking time together to clasp the other person. Some have surmised that this is a coy reference to the necessary arousal leading eventually to their intimate time together. And he's serving her desires. He has one hand under her head in a very intimate embrace and with his other hand he's touching her and so she's been hinting at children let's see if the pomegranates are in bloom look here's some mandrakes i wish you were like my brother who used to nurse with my mother i'd like to bring you to the home of my mother the one who taught me all the you know what things that we can do together is there and here have some pomegranate wine it's getting pretty obvious at this point but finally she's direct Instead of just saying, here, have some pomegranate wine. In verse 3, here, have me. And let's conceive a child in the same house in which I was conceived. In the context of having to compete with all the other women in Solomon's life, and yes, chapter 7, verse 10, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. This affirms that she is his one true love. But in this terrible context she's pulling out all the stops to strengthen their love she's been alluring she's been inviting she's been sensual she's been bonding with him in the vineyards and in the villages and now at her family home they're acting like newlyweds again if i could put it this way by way of application you will never criticize your way into a close relationship with your spouse You will never nag your way into a close relationship with your husband and you will never be critical with your wife to draw her near to you. She has done just the opposite of that. She has been alluring, inviting, sensual. In our culture, if you found out that your spouse had 60 others on the side, I I mean, murder might be okay. I'm not sure. But she is alluring to him, she manages to outdo 60 wives and 80 concubines with her love. But now she desires to even further solidify their tremendous love by making a child who will look like them both. A child that they will raise and love and cherish together. This is one of the purposes of having children. God designed the family to act as a bonding agent between husband and wife. That's what children are for. Now, we may joke about the fact that having children can actually prevent the having of more children, and we all understand that from a time standpoint. That's one of the ways we bond. Could I give you something simple to do as a married couple? If you already have children, and yet you sense a distance between you and your spouse, and you're in one of those times where you just feel like you're a little bit apart, take the time to talk about the blessings of the children, And not just the problems you need to solve with the children. Save those for another day. But the blessings. Talk about every child. And talk about how each one is a blessing. And how each one is like mom. And how each one is like dad. And let that joy which God created draw you together again. There's a third aspect of strengthening love. Strengthening love means grasping the magnitude of marriage. Strengthening love means grasping the magnitude of marriage. After verse 3, it's likely that Solomon and Shulamith are now headed home to Jerusalem. The next two verses now include, once again, the daughters of Jerusalem, the young girls who follow Solomon and Shulamith around in the story. And now, just seemingly kind of dropped in out of nowhere, comes the same warning that Shulamith has given the daughters of Jerusalem twice before verse 4, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. There are two different Hebrew versions of the same verb here, stir up and awaken. Stir up is a verb form that means to cause something to happen. Awaken is a different verb form of the same word which expresses a, a result. In this case, Repeated after the other form, it's a result. It has an emphatic force. Whatever you do, don't cause your love and desire to be awakened. The point here is you wait for love to blossom. You don't try to stimulate it artificially before you're ready for marriage. Clear warning. We've seen this all throughout Song of Solomon that while their love is beautiful, it also takes a toll on Shulamith, that there's, there's work involved, there's effort involved. One scholar says, quote, she warns the others not to arouse love until they're ready to meet its rigors, both physical and emotional. Love is not a passing fling, but rather a demanding and exhausting relationship. I'm not a scholar, so let me say it this way. Don't light the fuse until you're ready for the dynamite to go off. What lights the fuse of love in Song of Solomon? Let's review. Go back with me to chapter one. I'm going to give you a list of six things that light the fuse of love. Song of Solomon. And all of these things start with the letter P, because if you do these six, you're going to end up with pow, with love. What lights the fuse? First of all, pondering the other. Pondering the other person, thinking about them. Chapter 1, verse 2. This is Shulamith speaking. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. She's pondering him. She's clearly having thoughts about him. The second thing that lights the fuse of love, publicly making your desire known. Publicly making your desire known. Chapter 1, verse 4. Draw me after you. Let us run Now she's speaking to others. The king has brought me into his chambers. This is a a wish. How do we know that others know about her love for him? Because they say so. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. They're speaking to Solomon here, but they know there's something between Solomon and Shulamith. You publicly make your desire known. Pondering the other, publicly making your desire known. The third thing that lights the fuse of love is proximity to the other proximity to the other chapter 1 verse 7 she speaks to solomon tell me you whom my soul loves where you pasture your flock where you make it lie down at noon for why should i be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions what is she saying here she's saying i want to come hang out with you I want to be with you i want to spend time with you proximity makes this happen and how does he respond Verse 8, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. He draws her a map. Here's where to find me. Pondering the other, publicly making your desire known, proximity to the other. The fourth thing that lights the fuse, praises of the other. Praises of the other. Chapter 1, verse 15. Solomon says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She returns the favor. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. They're praising one another. It's Getting pretty serious at this point. This is the fifth thing that lights the fuse. The progression to serious talk. A progression to serious talk. Now, now they move beyond, oh, you're good looking. No, you're good looking. No, you're good looking. And they go to more serious things. Chapter 2. Verse 14, oh my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff. Remember, this is Solomon trying to draw her out from her family home because they have things to talk about and she's, she's hidden away. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. And you remember that this is them having very serious talks, most likely about what are we going to do about the fact that Kings around the world are throwing their daughters at Solomon. So they've progressed to serious talk, to to deep things of life. And the natural progression, number six, professed sexual desire. Professed sexual desire, that's the natural outflow. Chapter 2, verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies, Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. And we said, you recall, this is simultaneously her expressing her sexual desire and also saying, get away from me before we do something we'll regret. The progression of love, the lit fuse is clear in Song of Solomon. Pondering the other, publicly making your desire known, proximity to the other, praises to the other, progression to serious talk, Professed sexual desire, pow. That's love. That's love. What's the key? The key is in chapter 1, verse 8. He does not say, if you do not know, oh, most beautiful among little girls. He says, almost beautiful among women. She's ready for marriage. She's ready for marriage. And so Shulamith, all the way back in chapter 8 now, is giving this third warning and it's clear. Do not toy with love until it pleases. Literally in Hebrew, until a time that is favorable. This is one final warning to not play marriage before you're ready for marriage. To not light the fuse before you're ready for the dynamite to go off. Because a clock starts ticking. You can't just say, let's let, the, let's let the fuse go for 10 years. That doesn't work. Shulamith has grasped the magnitude of marriage. She understands that this life is loaded. And if you aim unwisely in the wrong direction, life will blow up in your face. That the heart is not something to be toyed with. It is serious business to let down your guard and enter into a relationship, and it is for grown-ups and grown-ups only. Every marriage would be strengthened by taking the time to remember and ponder and grasp the magnitude of what it means to be married. This one-flesh relationship, it's holy. It's magnificent. There's a fourth thing here that strengthening love means. Strengthening love means bonding increasingly through intimacy. Bonding increasingly through intimacy. Intimacy. This whole section going back to the end of chapter 6 has been an ever-increasing crescendo of deeply intimate and wondrous times together. We've already reviewed this. And now the daughters of Jerusalem witness what might be the most touching scene in all of Song of Solomon. An incredibly moving scene. Chapter 5. The daughters of Jerusalem are speaking here. I'm sorry. Chapter 8, verse 5. I apologize. Chapter 8, verse 5. The daughters of Jerusalem say this Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Leaning on her beloved. This is a picture of Solomon and Shulamith. They're returning to Jerusalem. They're walking together. And this is a picture of them arm in arm and her leaning on him, even with, with perhaps her head on his shoulder. They're close, they're strolling. They're delighted with one another. There's a a slowness and a quietness and a, a magnificent solitude to their togetherness here. They're enjoying the fruit of having truly pursued love together over the past days or even weeks from the vineyard to the villages to Shulamith's family home and the implication is on the way back again as well. Now, you may have heard this before. Who is that coming up from the wilderness? Because that's the third time that that particular question is asked. Who is this? The first time it was asked was back in chapter 3, verse 6. Shulamith coming to marry Solomon. Who is this coming out of the wilderness? It says, Shulamith, there was likely a great deal of apprehension that she was the true love of the king, who already had at least one wife by this time. And so, who is this coming? Oh, this is the one who says she's going to be his true love. The second, who is this, happens in chapter 6, verse 10. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? This answers the first, who is this? Will I be the one? Because in chapter 6, verse 10, it's the queens and the concubines, the other women saying, you are Solomon's true love. But now the third time, who is this coming up from the wilderness? Shulamith has won. She has totally gotten Solomon to herself. No other queen has taken him away for days or for weeks to their family home. She has the king all to herself. They're meandering out of the wilderness together after the glorious multiple reunions of chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. And so now they see the new spring. They see the refreshed and strengthened relationship between Solomon and Shulamith. I want to point out once again though that it's a misnomer to think that the emotional and even physical high point of Song of Solomon is at the honeymoon in chapter 4. It's not. Again, I would submit that the actual high point may be the very last verse of the entire book because it leaves a mystery And finally, the reader's shut out of the bedroom and the door slams in our face as as they go off together. The last verse of the whole book, chapter 8, verse 14, she says to him, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. And the bedroom door slams shut. And you're looking for chapter 9 and there isn't one. Because it's private. But what we see in the first part here of verse 5, is this glorious, blissful, slowly walking together, having bonded so richly. And I want you to notice this. They weren't just maintaining their marriage. They were strengthening it. I think that's a good question we could all ask ourselves as married couples. Don't you want your marriage to be better and better and better, not just maintained? Wouldn't that be honoring to God, just as our sanctification individually is to grow Second Corinthians 3.18, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Wouldn't it be honoring to God if your marriage is transformed from one degree of glory to another? Wouldn't it be nice that the remaining years of your life together on this earth are, are not filled with bickering and arguing and trying to get your way, but just serving one another and enjoying what Peter calls the grace of life? There's a fifth thing that strengthening love means. Strengthening love means cherishing your history. Strengthening love means cherishing your history. And now Shulamith speaks, speaks once again as they're walking. Second half of verse 5. Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Shulamith is speaking and she's recalling The beginning of their relationship and it was under the apple tree and we said a few chapters ago more likely the apricot tree no evidence of apple trees there but apricot trees yes apparently this is a special tree there your mother was in labor with you now in labor in hebrew it's a very ambiguous word it doesn't necessarily mean labor as in giving birth in fact it can refer to conception as much as labor but it has the idea of conception in the context of pain and suffering. There is a laboriousness to it. There is a pain. What was the pain? What was the labor of Solomon's conception? Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. And you recall the horrific circumstances of David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11 tells their story. Bathsheba was originally the wife of Uriah. The trusted officer in David's army and while Uriah was at war on David's behalf ironically he had an affair with David had an affair with Bathsheba and when she found that she was pregnant David ordered that Uriah be placed at the front of the battle and abandoned so that he would be killed by the enemy David married Bathsheba and she gave birth to a son but God's judgment was that they would never raise that child and the child died what happened then? Second Samuel 12, beginning in verse 24, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name, this is a nickname, he called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. But in the white space between David uniting with Bathsheba and the birth of Solomon and his growing up, what would be the natural question after her first son had died? The natural question would be, will this child live? Will this child live? In fact, it's likely the reason that God sent Nathan the prophet to assure them that God would love this child. That they would have a natural fear of another death. And so Nathan comes to comfort them. And so Shulamith is pointing out the apricot tree that literally may have been the place where Solomon was conceived or perhaps where Bathsheba had gone into labor. There's some connection to his birth, to this literal tree. In any case, Solomon was alive in the sovereignty of God through the adultery of his father. And after his older brother had died in infancy, the coming of Solomon into the world was a travail. It was a drama. It was a labor. This particular tree must have meant a lot to Solomon. He clearly knew the story and he clearly had told Shulamith this very personal story. And apparently at one time, Solomon was there sitting under that tree alone, perhaps contemplating these things. And Shulamith, under that very tree where Solomon had perhaps been conceived, under the apple tree, under the apricot tree, I awakened you. By the way, did you notice that they have been to Shulamith's home where she was conceived? And now they're talking about the apricot tree where Solomon was conceived. She reminds him of their own history under that tree that she awakened him. She awakened his love for her. Remember, we said in some of the early messages that they probably grew up together. But now they're adults And you know how it is when you grow up with somebody, you kind of think of that person more as a brother or sister. You don't think romantically, but she awakened him. Why did she awaken him to her love? She was ready for marriage and she took that step to express her desire for him. Now the big question is, how did she awaken him to her love? Well, this is a word always used in Song of Solomon to speak of stirring up physical desire. And it's not hard for us to imagine what she did. She probably planted a big old smooch on him. And at that point, Solomon was history. That was it. That's all it took. At that point, he said, oh, I never looked at you that way. And now that's the only way I can look at you. But this is precious. What is she doing? She's going back and rehearsing the history that they have together. She's going back to, we might call it, their first date. And she's remembering. I would encourage all of you to do that. It's precious to go back and rehearse the history that you and your spouse have. God wrote a unique story for you, and it might not be always filled with all pleasantries. There might be some pain involved with your story. We understand that. But God brought you together sovereignly. God brought you together. And so they rehearse and they cherish their history. There's a sixth thing that strengthening love means. Strengthening love means giving exclusive rights. Giving exclusive rights. And now we get to something we've never really seen in Song of Solomon. Verses 6 and 7 contain the most direct teaching in the entire poem, and the subject is. Deadly serious, it is about the strengthening of marital love through commitment. And this is Shulamith making a strong plea for total commitment for a lifetime. She's been hinting at it. She's been asking for it. Here and there, in certain ways, let's have a child. Let's go out into the country together. Let's renew our love. Let's get you away from all those queens, all those concubines. But now she makes a direct request. In verse 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, it flashes, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. She says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, a seal with some sort of stamp or ring with which you sealed the leather with wax or identified something as belonging to you. And she says, Make me your seal. Make me that which represents you. Wear me as a seal on your arm. And know this, remember, they're walking together. She's leaning on Solomon. She's got a hold of his arm. And she says, keep me here. Keep me right here as the seal on your arm. Remember, they're headed back to the palace. They're headed back to the, the, the den of queens and concubines. And she's begging him, remember our love. She's pursued him many times on this trip together to solidify their love and now she reminds him to remember and not to leave her in the dust. The seriousness and the gravity of this statement indicates that after having him all to herself, after having wooed him and won him, it's entirely likely that she is asking Solomon to make her exclusive for her to be the only wife. Culturally speaking, it is entirely possible she is asking him to send all the other women away. Now you might not think that applies in our times, but the fact is that a man can have many wives. They might not be women, but the other wife might be a career, it might be hobbies, it might be lack of interest, it might be money, it might be power, it might be distractions of a thousand different kinds. It's right and it's biblical to request to be the top priority in love. And this gets lived out with your calendar, with your time, with your thoughts, with the effort you put into your relationship. One of the many reasons that Shulamith continually says three times over, do not awaken love before it pleases. Because there's a pursuit, there's a growth, there's an effort necessary to totally prioritize your marriage. It's not something you play with. And look just how serious she is. Verse 6, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. That brings us to our seventh aspect of strengthening love. Strengthening love means worshiping the Lord. Strengthening love means worshiping the Lord. She says love is as strong as death. She's saying that her love for him is as irresistible and as unconquerable as death. She's saying, I will never get over you. That just as death will come after us, so my love is irresistible. And she says jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Love unreturned or the potential of his love fading can turn love into horrible, torturous jealousy. This also has overtones of sexual passion. She can't just turn that off. She can't just let that fade. Now, Song of Solomon does not directly mention the full name of God, Yahweh. God is assumed in the background because He is the author of this poem and it's His design for human marital love in the context of marriage. Except for a subtle mention here that really serves as the spiritual high point of the book. She says... Its flashes are are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. The flame of the Lord is a long, one word in Hebrew which uses the abbreviated, shortened name of God. The abbreviated version of Yahweh, we would say it is the flame of Yah. The shortened version of Yahweh. She speaks of His jealousy. Jealousy is used a couple of dozen other times in the Old Testament and it's associated with the the jealousy of God. And there's often attached to the description of the jealousy of God a description of fire. Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 29.19, The jealousy of God is said to smoke. Ezekiel 38.19 speaks of God's jealousy and blazing wrath. In Zechariah 3.8, God speaks of His coming judgment of the wicked on the earth. He says, quote, All my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Sometimes this word for jealousy is translated as the zeal of the Lord. In fact, Jesus fulfilled Psalm 69.10 twice when He cleansed the temple of money changers. Psalm sixty nine. Verse 9 rather says, For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. By far the majority of the 43 times this noun is used in the Old Testament it speaks of the Lord's jealousy that His people remain faithful to Him. Remain faithful. And so we can make a very strong case here that Shulamith is reminding Solomon of the jealousy of God as an example of how strong their love ought to be. That she's acting like God in this. In her yearning that Solomon be true to her. And there is an implicit warning here to not go after the things and the women of the world, but stay true to her. And the love they recently rekindled at a high level. And then she simply says it directly that the jealousy of God, its flashes are fl- flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. This is an appeal to worship God. This is an appeal to worship God by seeing that my love for you is complete and I want to be the only one because that's God's will. Don't incur the, the discipline of the Lord. It may sound odd to us. Be faithful to your marriage and worship God. Putting those together. You know, there's overtones of that in the New Testament. First Peter three, verse seven. Likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. That a man who will not honor his wife cannot expect his prayers to be answered. Why? Because he's not worshiping. Let me give you a very simple reason to work at strengthening your love. Very simply because you're a Christian. Because you're a Christian and you claim to be a follower of Christ. Because you've been forgiven of every one of your sins and therefore really you have no right to complain that your spouse isn't perfect. Instead, you cherish and you love and you pursue. Because that's exactly what God did with you, didn't He? Romans 3 says there's no one who seeks after God. He sought after you. And there's one more aspect, strengthening love. Strengthening love means loving unconditionally. Loving unconditionally. Now Shulamith ascends to the heights of poetic expression and seriousness. She's more serious than we've ever seen her. In verse 7, she says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. She goes from the metaphor of fire, jealousy like the fiery jealousy of God, to the metaphor of water. That no amount of water could extinguish her love for him. No amount of money could buy away her love. And considering that Solomon was the wealthiest man on earth, had he chosen to try to send her away with fabulous wealth, and he could have, she's saying it's not possible. You could offer me all your wealth and I wouldn't go. And if you tried, you'd be despised. So Shulamith is imploring Solomon to totally commit himself. Again, verse 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. This is a plea to Solomon to make her his exclusive wife, to put away the foreign women and to have her be the sole woman in his life. And Solomon's silence at this point is deafening. We have to acknowledge the historic reality. Shulamith has issued a challenge here to Solomon, a challenge to maintain the strength of their love. They're walking arm in arm. She's leaning on him and she says, keep me here. And he doesn't answer her. She's given them a challenge to maintain the strength of their love and perhaps even to get rid of these other women and ultimately he didn't live up to that challenge. We don't know why. Scripture doesn't tell us. It may be that he was too overtaken by the other women or with the potential ramifications of putting away all his other wives. Because what would that have done if he put away 60 wives? He was going to have a war with 60 kings, most likely. It may also be, some have speculated that Shulamith died at some point and devoid of his first love, Solomon plunged into other excess. Because we don't see Shulamith in the picture of his life after Song of Solomon. Whether she died soon after or not, we don't know. But we do know that Solomon went down a dark and terrible road. 1 Kings 11 tells us, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father." For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem." And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. If in Song of Solomon chapter 8, Solomon had said, you got it, babe. All of that would have been avoided. Who's the author of Song of Solomon? It's Solomon. Why would Solomon write in her plea and his own failed silence. Why would he do that? The book of Ecclesiastes has the answer. I want to have you turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Just back a book, Ecclesiastes 2. You remember, Song of Solomon was written when Solomon was an old man. Most likely, even after the abominations of 1 Kings 11, when he apparently... Finally came to his senses, but in all likelihood without Shulamith. We don't know what happened to her, but we know that at the end of his life, she wasn't there. This is the story of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, also as a very old man. And I want to take time and read a lengthy passage. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, and this is the story of Ecclesiastes. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. In other words, life to him was just one grand experiment to see what would give him the most pleasure. Verse 10, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. What is the book of Ecclesiastes? The book of Ecclesiastes is written, in essence, to a young person to say, don't live my life because it goes nowhere. It's a way to live a whole life in advance of having gone through the consequences that he does. That's the story of Ecclesiastes. But what's his conclusion? It's the key word of Ecclesiastes, that it's vanity. Literally in Hebrew, it's a breath. It's, It's nothing. So what did he learn? Turn to the end of the book, Ecclesiastes 12. At the end of the book, what's Solomon's conclusion about life? His conclusion about life is that the only pathway to enjoy is to follow the Lord and obey Him. That's the only pathway of enjoyment. Chapter 12, verse 8 A vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son... Beware of anything beyond these, beyond what? Beyond the words of the shepherd, capital S, God. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. And here it is. This is what Solomon learned. This is is his legacy at the very, very end of his life. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. To try to have it all is vanity. It's pointless. It's useless. useless, It ends in nothing. Instead, he says, fear God. Being a worshiper of God will expose every single sin anyway. So why did Solomon record his own failure by his silence at Shulamith's request in Song of Solomon chapter 8? It is a testimony to his regret and to what he ultimately learned. I wonder if Solomon could go back in time to that moment when Shulamith clung to his arm and they walked alone and she said, please make me your one true love. I wonder what he would have done. Did you know he told us? Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. He told us what he would have done. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 9. at a time in his life when Shulamith is no longer there. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Enjoy life with a wife whom you love. That's your portion, that's your blessing in a life that's filled with difficulty and pain. If only he had said yes. In all seriousness, all of us who are married, you will have a final married day on this earth. Don't let it be filled with regret. Instead, strengthen your growing love. I've given you a list by honoring above all others elevating the bond with children, grasping the magnitude of marriage, bonding increasingly through intimacy, cherishing your history, giving exclusive rights, worshiping the Lord, and loving unconditionally. No regrets. No regrets. Don't be Solomon is the ultimate lesson of Song of Solomon. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the clear instruction of your word. It couldn't be clearer. It's exactly as you intended to communicate to us. And we see implications here far beyond marriage, far beyond the relationship between the man and the woman. This is about the relationship between a believer and his God. We obey you out of love for you, and we live out that obedience first and foremost in our homes, in the private times with our spouses. Lord, we live in a sinful world where many of us may have spouses that have already brought such pollution and difficulty to the marriage. And we may be the ones that have brought pollution and difficulty to the marriage. And yet through Christ and through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, through prayer, there is healing, there is newness of life. The prophet Jeremiah said that your mercies are new every morning. And so I pray for our marriages. I pray for the ones, Lord, that are hurting, that have secret pain behind closed doors. Oh, Lord, let them seek after You, first as individuals to purify and cleanse their own hearts of the idols they've set up in their own homes of false expectations and wishes for the other to make me totally happy and all those idols that we set up. Cleanse our own hearts, Lord. Convict us of sin Help us to look heavenward, to be more and more like Christ. And then to look toward our spouse, to treat them as if we are Christ. For husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church with a fierce, jealous, exclusive love. For wives to honor their husbands as Unto the Lord. Because these things are not just marriage tips and tricks. They are means of worshiping our God. I pray for our marriages, Lord, that you would bless them, that you would sanctify them, that you would bring healing and help. The ones that are strong, make them stronger. The ones that are weak, strengthen them, Lord. Help them to turn to you, to turn to one another To live this day as if it is the last. So that we do not come to the end of our lives with regrets. And yes, we know that you will wipe away every tear, that you will make all things right. But you have given us an obligation in this life to end well. And so let our marriages do that. And we pray all to the glory of Christ, the head of the church, our King. Amen.